Chapter 15 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 15 Land Ho! It was broad daylight and bitter cold when we awoke on Thursday, November 18th. The wind, while still blowing a gale, had moderated somewhat, and the sea, though still high, seemed to have gone down a bit during the night. Charles, who had been doing a lot of mighty good work below deck since leaving Ponta Delgada, got a fire in the shipmate, and we were able to fry some porridge that had been cooked some time before and had been salvaged from the wreckage in Dillaway's bunk. This, with more fried paste, or dough gods as we called them, and a little soup, added to the effect of a good night's rest, put the entire personnel into high spirits again. Except for his experience at the bilge pump during the ordeal of the day before, Dillaway had been confined to his bunk for several days, and, due to his inability to recuperate on our limited fare, he was still down, although no longer suffering from seasickness. A noon sight gave an altitude of 31 degrees 56 minutes 20 seconds, which put us in latitude 38 degrees 35 minutes 07 seconds, by two o'clock, conditions had moderated so that we were able to work on deck again, and, after hoisting the jib and mizzen, we relaced the head of the mainsail, and by four o'clock we were able to carry it. An afternoon sight put us in longitude 70 degrees 44 minutes, which meant that we were exactly 200 miles southeast of New York, with the wind directly against us. The best we could do was a west-by-south course, but the wind seemed to be dying, and we hoped for a shift before long. A small land bird, probably driven offshore by the recent storm, came aboard during the afternoon, but unlike our little friend from Spain, he left us after resting for an hour or so. By 5.30 the wind had died, and after flattening in all the sails, we went below until 7.30, when a light breeze sprang up from west-northwest allowing us to take the port tack and hold due north magnetic, which was better than our earlier west-by-south course. All night, Typhoon sailed herself close-hauled. As we were drawing in toward the shipping lanes, we kept our usual watches, but it was unnecessary for anyone actually to be on deck. The man on watch sat in the warmth of the companionway with only his head exposed while the rest slept soundly. The lights of two vessels were seen during the night. On Friday morning, November 19th, the wind had backed nearly to the west, and the intense cold left no doubt that we had drawn well out of the Gulf Stream. In fact, it was cold enough for snow, and blowing so hard that it was a hardship to stay at the wheel for any length of time. Frequent drenchings with the icy spray added to the discomfort. We tried to stick it out under full sail, but at 8.30 in the morning we were forced to reef the main and at 1 p.m. we had to tie in another reef. Even thus shortened down, Typhoon staggered a bit, but we were now racing with hunger, and we held her to it. A noon sight gave us latitude 39 degrees 11 minutes 51 seconds, and an afternoon sight 71 degrees 4 minutes longitude, which put us about 150 miles from Sandy Hook and about 115 miles from Montauk Point, confirming our decision to make for the eastern end of Long Island Sound. At 3 p.m., a ship bound northeast passed us within a quarter of a mile, and, seizing upon the opportunity she afforded, Fox jumped to the main rigging, 
armed with the logbook and a frying pan, and, held there by Charles, he semaphored, Please report Typhoon from Azores. She repeated the message and must have forwarded it, as we found later that it had been picked up by the Navy stations, which already had been trying to find us. At 4.40 p.m. we were forced to lower the mainsail entirely in order to avoid the risk of losing it, but we made nearly as good time under jib and mizzen with considerably less fuss. Taking advantage of the opportunity, we got out the last sack of coal from the lazarette, for the cabin was a dreary place without a fire in the shipmate. It was still impossible to do any cooking on the range because of the ever-present danger of spilling the contents of the pans, but we managed to fry the usual dough gods on the primus, which is hung in gimbals. It was a three-man job. Fox, propped between the companion steps and the oilskin locker, held the batter, while Charles steadied the skipper, who was lashed in place with a line about his waist. The result was scarcely worthy of mention. At 9 p.m. the boys turned in, dead tired, and I sat out the first watch, enjoying the heat of the stove, while Typhoon sailed herself, actually beating her way to windward under shortened sail. Saturday, November 19th, the 31st day from Ponta Delgada, was the best day of the whole cruise. Sailing herself through the night, the entire crew took advantage of the opportunity to get another good sleep. Even the man on watch dozed comfortably in the warmth of the companionway. At seven o'clock, we all turned out except Dillaway, who, still a bit weak, was instructed to keep to his berth, as there was no need of his getting up. After repairing the clue of the mainsail, which had been torn out, we shook out the reefs, hoisted it, came about on the starboard tack, and held a west-by-north course, the wind having hauled during the night from west to north. A morning sight gave us a longitude position of 71 degrees 18 minutes, and by holding a west-by-north course, we should pick up Montauk Point, possibly during the following night. At 11 a.m. we sighted a ship off the port bow headed on an easterly course, and, as it looked as if we should just about meet her, Fox took his position in the rigging armed with logbook and frying pan. As she passed a quarter of a mile or so ahead of us, he whipped out the message, Please report Yacht Typhoon, New York, 31 days from Azores. But evidently our friend could not read the message, for he stopped his engines and stood by while we came about and luffed up under his lee. The ship proved to be the Guillaume Soroya of Valencia, and, while we had merely intended to request him to relay our message by radio, the opportunity was too great a one to miss, and I decided that, since he was good enough to stop, we'd brace him for a little food. With some difficulty and with the help of willing interpreters, I explained to the skipper, a grizzled old Spanish sea dog, that we had left the Azores 31 days ago and were practically out of food. There was some mention of the gale, and the interpreter shouted down something that I could not entirely make out, but which sounded like five ships lost Jamaica in that storm. After complying with their suggestion to come alongside and heave up a line, I sent up a card on the boat hook, and the skipper handed me his by the same vehicle. It read, Francisco Soler Aragones, Capitan del Vapor Guillem Soroya, Barcelona. By this time, most of the ship's company, including a Jersey calf, had appeared at the rail and were gazing down on us, and there were many questions in most of the modern languages 
from which I gathered that they were anxious to know whether we did this sort of thing for pleasure. I smiled, pointed to the burgee of the New York Canoe Club, and then waited awkwardly while the skipper gave orders to his steward. Someone pitched down a few sea biscuits, and I think the alacrity with which Charles and Dillaway, who was again on deck, went after them, must have convinced our friends that we were indeed hungry. But nothing further seemed to happen. And then up from one of the hatches a caravan appeared, bearing bags and boxes which they brought to the rail and prepared to lower away. The first item to come aboard was a huge bag of sea biscuits, then a big chunk of a hind quarter of beef, weighing at least thirty pounds, came down on the cabin trunk with a thud, followed in rapid succession by a large sack of rice, another of Spanish peas, ten loaves of fresh bread, fifteen pounds of sugar, a quarter of a keg of lard, a number of those big slabs of dried codfish called bacala by the Spaniards, bunches of onions, cabbages, salt pork, soup meat, and a leg of mutton. I held up my hands, explaining to the kind old gentleman that we were coming from Europe, not bound there, and that all we wanted was enough food to take us into port. The situation amused the skipper immensely, and, paying no attention to my protest, he stood at the rail and pelted us with apples, pears, peppers, and canned fruit. When the barrage finally subsided, our stock was increased by six large tins each of peaches, pears, milk, salmon, and sardines, and then, just to do the job up in proper style, two bottles of cognac were lowered aboard. As each missile hit the deck, our spirits rose, and by the time the cognac came aboard, the crew of the typhoon were cavorting and babbling like a Sunday school picnic, all of which seemed to delight our friend immensely. The ethics of the sea demanded certain courtesies. We could not rush below straight away and eat, although the temptation was great. As we cast off, we gave the Guillem Soroya three lusty cheers, dipped our ensign, and saluted with the foghorn, to which she replied with much cheering, blast after blast of the whistle, and many a dip of her Spanish ensign as she got under way again for Europe. And then, letting Typhoon sail herself, we rushed below and prepared the greatest meal that we had ever eaten. To the skipper fell the privilege of cutting off huge steaks, which we cooked and served between slices of wonderful Spanish bread. For hours we ate, finishing the repast with the fruit which we had craved for days. The effect on the crew was miraculous. Dillaway was again himself, and with our belts fitting snugly once more, we felt capable of going back the way we'd come. At least we had food enough for the passage. That night we had a real roast of beef, cooked in the oven, with brown gravy, fresh vegetables, more fruit and cognac, and we turned in with a glowing charity for each other, the world in general, and especially for the skipper of the Guillaume Soroya. Months later, in reply to a letter I had written him to express our gratitude, I received one from Captain Soler, which shows the spirit of the man far better than I can do it. It reads, Compania Transmediterranea Barcelona, Vapor Guillaume Soroya. Barcelona, 12th of February, 1921. Mr. William Washburn Nutting, FRGS, New York, New York. Dear Sir, I am very much pleased to acknowledge receipt of your favor of January 8th, 1921, informing me your happy arrival to the great city of New York. 
Since our departure, after that interesting scene in the high sea, I tried to advise to the radio-telegraphic station of Arlington your situation, which with great anxiety were asking for the typhoon's fate, and what I could not reply till to find another ship's station to serve me as intermediate, because mine was insufficiently strong. I am very much grateful to the typhoon's crew for the salute rendered to the Spanish flag, which, as you know, was turned back by all the crew of my ship with sympathetic demonstrations to the flag of the powerful country of the United States. Hip, hip, hurrah! During our trip, we remembered and spoken with admiration of these five brave Americans, who, thinking nothing of their life, faced the danger to pass through the Atlantic in November in so a little boat. Should I form part of the Washington government, I would propose you for a great insignia as a reward to the valor and merit. Referring to the value of the food supplied to you, I wish you know that I consider me greatly paid with the honor to auxiliate five heroes who by their proper will form a part of the great family who pass through the immense sea, to whom I consider as my brothers. It is the best lieu for the humanitarian suggestion. About this, allow me a Spanish proverb, Today for you, tomorrow for me. All as regretted very much that due to the strong storm should not be possible to you to remain longer at our side, for I had ordered to prepare some poultry, tobacco, and some things more that I was desirous to furnish you. I am heartily sorry that one of the members of your crew be sick, and I send my best wishes for a speedy recovery. I will be greatly pleased in receiving a copy of your motorboat book, which I will read with my best attention and interest, and same with Typhoon's photographs. I will be always at your disposition, and if some day I return to New York, I will be glad to have the pleasure to shake hands with you. Your sincerely friend as ever, signed Francisco Soler, Master. Through the quaint phraseology of that letter shines the soul of a true veteran of the sea, a member of that brotherhood in which petty barriers of nationality or creed or wealth are forgotten in a closer bond of true fellowship than ever existed among the people of the land. Captain Francisco Soler has the undying gratitude of the crew of the Typhoon. Before casting off from the Guillaume Soroya, we obtained from the first officer his latitude and longitude, which differed from our estimated position by several miles. Assuming that our position, after 31 days at sea, was probably incorrect, we changed our course a bit to the west to fetch Montauk Point, planning to enter the eastern end of Long Island Sound. At six o'clock on Sunday morning, November 20th, Dillaway, who was at the wheel, reported a light off the port bow just where we figured that Montauk Point should have been. But instead of the ten-second flash of Montauk, it showed a group of three flashes. Feeling that we were, if anything, to the eastward of Montauk, the next most probable guess was Block Island, but referring to the light list, we found that the light on the southern end of the island was a fixed one. The only light possible on this section of the coast showing three flashes was Shinnecock, which is on Long Island, 32 miles to the westward of Montauk. By this time, the growing daylight had dimmed the flashes so that we could no longer time them, but as soon as it was light enough, I recognized the shaft of Shinnecock. Had we taken our own position instead of that of our friends, we should have come very near hitting Montauk, a fact that is difficult to explain, since we claim no particular skill in navigation. The wind was from the northeast, 
and to avoid the long beat necessary to make the eastern end of the sound, we decided to run before it along the Long Island coast. Attracted by the first land we had seen in over a month, we drew in close to the beach, enjoying the panorama as we bowled along at a good six knots. At 1.20 p.m., Fire Island Light was abeam. Drawing still closer in toward the beach to drink in the unusual sight of sunlight on the yellow sand, the deserted cottages, the life-saving stations, we gave no thought to the chart, spending our time rather in concocting wonderful things to eat. At about 4.30, I noticed some strange-looking waves ahead of us, of a kind we had not had outside, and before I realized what we were getting into, we came down in the hollow of a sea and hit the hard bottom with a thump. Looking seaward, I saw two buoys a mile or so off the beach and realized instantly that we had cut over the shoal that makes out from Jones Inlet. Throwing the wheel hard over, we actually got out of it without hitting again, but it was a close call and a warning that coastwise sailing requires constant attention to business. When well out in deep water again, we jibed to the starboard tack, but the wind by this time was nearly astern of us. To keep it on the starboard quarter caused us to work in again too close to the land, necessitating another jibe. Lowering the peak and hauling in the sheet, we eased her over, but the shock was too great for our weather-beaten mainsail, which let go with the crack of a pistol shot and tore completely across from leech to luff. Things were happening to us with a vengeance. We had escaped stranding on our own threshold, only to lose our mainsail, but nothing much mattered except that we were actually almost within sight of the Woolworth building. Darkness came on, and one after another the rows of lights that marked the boardwalks of the deserted beaches all too slowly dropped astern. At ten o'clock we picked up the red flash of Norton Point, and keeping well out so as to avoid the shoal which lies off Rockaway Point, we made for it, and, after an unsuccessful effort to beat up the bay against the tide under jib and mizzen, we gave it up and anchored off the old Atlantic Yacht Club in Gravesend Bay, a few hours over thirty-two days from the time we had left Ponta Delgada. On the following day we beat up the narrows against the tide and a strong northwester, and tied up in the slip at St. George, Staten Island, where we were forced to spend the night, for the simple reason that the wind blew a gale and we were unable to get out of the slip. And then the reporters and the movie folks descended upon us, and we learned that Mr. Harding had been elected. But our tribulations were not yet over. After a strenuous night of pitching in the slip, it still remained to take Typhoon up the East River, through Hellgate, and into Long Island Sound, and to do this under shortened sail proved more of an ordeal than taking her across the Atlantic. Awaiting a favorable tide, we got underway late in the afternoon with the assistance of our good friends, W.P. and Coke Stevens, and Henry Frisch, and all went well until we got into the lee of the big buildings on the lower end of Manhattan. By this time it was dark. With no skyline visible, the huge shapes of the skyscrapers were shown only by the myriad lights from the office windows, a fairy scene that moved even the English contingent to frank admiration. Suddenly we found ourselves blanketed with about one knot steerage way in a four-knot tide, and before we could work out into the middle of the stream, we were caught among a lot of barges tied up on the Long Island side, 
splintering the corner of our counter and one side of our rail. Thinking that we were doing this sort of thing because we liked it, an irate tugboat captain bawled us out for blundering into his berth. This was the last straw, and vying with each other in our command of the language of the cattle ship, Coke Stevens and I answered him in kind so effectively that he must have thought that we were thoroughly initiated members of the Marine Truck Drivers Union. At any rate, his attitude changed perceptibly, and he threw us a line and jerked us out into midstream with a cheery good luck as we cast off. I suspect that by this time he had recognized the little ship, as most of the other craft seemed to have done by daylight, judging by the tooting that marked our passage up the river. In order to do Hellgate in daylight and with a favorable tide, we pulled in near the New York Yacht Club station for the night, and the next day shot through the gate under jib, mizzen, and storm trysail, successfully negotiating the whirlpools and anchoring off Whitestone Landing. And so it was that the idea that had its birth in the cabin of the Elsie on the Broad Door Lakes thirteen months before, the idea of building a boat that should cross the Atlantic, was realized. End of chapter 15